Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. I'm Connor DeWire Reynolds, a third-year law student at Yale Law School. I'm excited to be here today with Arden Schenker, who is a pioneer in American environmental law. He's obtained landmark verdicts against polluters in Oregon, worked as a special assistant attorney general in Montana, and served as the Ethics Committee Chair of the American Bar Association's Section on Energy, Environment, and Resources. Arden is a Yale Law School graduate and is currently a partner at the Oregon law firm of Schenken and Bonaparte, LLP, where he handles a wide range of complex litigation. Arden, it's great to have you with us. Glad to be here, Connor. So you've been litigating environmental cases for decades, even before environmental law was even a practice area. How'd you get started? I started in the litigation phase by doing one case after another. They were mostly small, personal injury, property damage, cases involving insurers of one kind or another. I frequently represented insurers, but I would have two or three cases a week that had to be tried before juries. So after a relatively short period of time, I found that I'd already tried 100 or 200 or 300 cases. That's how I got the experience as a litigator. But one of the first cases on which I worked, when I first came into the office of a major Portland law firm, did involve environmental legal concepts, but nobody called them that. They were the problems that our clients, fruit growers in the Dalles, Oregon, had as a result of the effluent from the pollution of a nearby aluminum plant interfering with their growing of tree fruits. And our job was to figure out what legal theories might be available to effect the cessation of that damage and then to collect compensation for the damage they had received. In the absence of environmental law thoughts of those days, we utilized ordinary tort concepts, trespass and nuisance. So I want to talk more about trespass and nuisance. For lots of people, they might not know what those things are. Can you talk about what what those legal concepts mean to the ordinary person? Trespass to the ordinary person, I think, probably is conceived best by somebody who wanders onto your land. Or if you wander onto somebody else's land. In Oregon, which is timber country, it was classically the case of the individual who wandered off his land and cut trees that didn't belong to him. Nuisance would involve the noxious fumes that might be effected from any kind of a, a facility that then caused discomfort to neighbors in an area and required the courts to balance the degree of discomfort with the degree of difficulty of somebody stopping the nuisance. Those are different but possibly complementary and, and correlative concepts. So you use both these theories in the landmark case Rankin v. Harvey Aluminum. That's literally the textbook case on using tort law to fight companies that were major air polluters in the 60s and 70s. So can you tell me about how Harvey Aluminum was polluting and who your clients were? Our clients were the fruit growers, neighbors of the aluminum plant, which was built in the 50s. Our clients have been there for decades from the early part of the 20th century. And they realized after a couple of years of the aluminum plant's operation that there were airborne particulate matter that were coming from the aluminum plant and settling in the orchards. They also realized that there was some dust flying about in the atmosphere and did not know that, in fact, the 
airborne emissions were part of the overall particulate matter that was eventually landing in the orchard. So we needed scientists to tell us how this was happening, what the phenomena were. And then we needed to find a way of stopping the pollution, which was the reason for the entry of the nuisance theory so that a court exercising its equitable powers could tell the aluminum plant to stop polluting. Arden, why didn't your why didn't your clients just go to a local environmental agency or petition the APA to help? Why did they need you? There were no environmental agencies extant at that time. There was no federal legislation that provided any enforcement. There was the beginning of a small amount of regional enforcement for environmental concerns in the Portland area, but not elsewhere in the state of Oregon. So it was up to us to fashion tools from common law, from torts, from trespass, and from nuisance. Now, mind you, this is four or five years after the pollution began. So our clients also were entitled to compensation for the loss of their crops and trees and fruits over a period of five or six years. And that's where trespass entered the scene, because that would back up their damages for six years in order to find compensation for what they had lost. So how were the courts receptive to these theories of uh, nuisance and trespass initially? We found a very good judge. The initial case was tried before the Honorable John F. Kilkenny, a federal district judge who was from eastern Oregon, and I think understood the way in which farmers are entitled to protection from those who would invade their property by air with the uh, pollution of concern. Uh, So he was receptive. Once we had convinced him that we had the facts on our side, that you should be able to demonstrate that the pollution was there and it was causing harm, and that there were ways of solving the problem by installing pollution control systems that the aluminum plant ought to have put in in the first place, didn't, but then could be compelled to put in later. You were just one law firm. How did you figure out how the pollution affected your clients' lives and make that into a number that that had to be resolved in damages? That required science. We had a team of experts that we had to put together. Mind you, these were experts who were, for the first time, plowing this field. And they, therefore, had to draw upon their basic science and understanding. They were experts not just from the Oregon country, but from other states and other places around the country. We needed somebody to look at the meteorology, to see the flow from the aluminum plant to the orchards. We needed somebody to indicate the extent of the deposition of effluent into the orchards. Those were plant pathologists. We needed physical chemists and chemical engineers to determine the capacity of the aluminum plant to stop the emissions which they were conducting. And we needed economists who could, with statistical analysis, determine the amount of the loss in crops and value to the use of the uh, plaintiff's property. This was our team of experts that we had to put together. It's like a little mini EPA, it sounds like. It was, and it would have been nice if we'd had an EPA available. (laughs) What we did have available early on was the first Clean Air Act in the 60s. That legislation did not provide for enforcement. It provided for research. And the very first application for a grant for research under that first federal legislation was by Governor Tom McCall in Oregon to determine how the Hood River Experiment Station 
could analyze what the effluent was that came from the aluminum plant and what its effect was on the tree fruits in the area. So with the help of the scientists at the Hood River Experiment Station, we could then translate into plant pathological expression what the actual harm and damage was. Now, you convinced one judge of your theories, but that's not how the case ended. There was an appeal from Harvey Aluminum, correct? There was. It was a very interesting kind of appeal. Our judge, in the original case, determined that there was an opportunity for the aluminum plant to solve the problem altogether. And he gave the aluminum plant a year in which to come up with the solutions that he thought were extant. The aluminum plant company took an appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in order to attack the determination of that judge. And in the course of the appeal, they wrote, I suppose you would call it a special application by motion to show that the case had become moot because they had done some testing to find that there were no more pollutants of any concern coming out of the aluminum plant, on the basis of which they asked the Court of Appeals to dismiss the case. The Court of Appeals looked at the material from the aluminum plant and said, well, that looks kind of compelling. We'll send it back to the district court. We'll ask the district court to take a look at it. It did go back to the district court, and there we were able to unmask the fact that the pollution coming out of the aluminum plant for the time of the test that they said showed that the problem was moot was very low because the plant was not operating during that time. Wow. When we caught them in that fraud, the district judge thought that that was contemptible, but he didn't think that he had the authority to do anything about it because his job from the Court of Appeals was simply to look at the factual question of whether the problem had been solved. So he said, take this back to the Ninth Circuit and tell them that I think some appropriate sanctions ought to be applied, but I don't have the jurisdiction to do it. We took it back to the Ninth Circuit. Ninth Circuit agreed with Judge Kilkenny and us that this was contemptible and that the case should continue in the district court, giving us the opportunity to expand our scientific research to see what the extent of the harm was and the extent to which the problems could be solved. We then fanned out all over the world to look for experts in parallel situations at the cost of the aluminum plant, which eventually gave up the ghost, agreed to put in pollution control systems, and agreed to the entry of a consent decree that would measure the amount of damages retrospectively. The information you gathered from going around the world helped create a pollution control system for Harvey Aluminum. Were those pollution controls and information and science behind it used elsewhere? Oh, by all means, they became part of the public domain. And we certainly were aware of that kind of information. So we were asked by other folks to take a look at their similar problems around similar aluminum plants all over the world. In particular, we were asked by the state of Montana to come in to take a look at their particular problems, both with respect to aluminum plants and two other smelters, a lead smelter and a copper smelter. And those kinds of scientific liaisons that we had effected during the time that at Harvey Aluminum's expense, we could locate the information became part of the public domain that we used and was available for environmental control. So this case functioned as a means of aggregating science, 
using that science to go after polluters, and then providing that science to the general public to use in its more broad environmental efforts. True. It was a springboard. And as of that time, the EPA was beginning to develop. And in fact, it thereafter launched some enforcement mechanisms. And we, in fact, worked hand in glove with the EPA representatives in Denver, whose jurisdiction included Montana, for the work that we were doing there on behalf of the state of Montana. So since that time, the EPA has become a real player in doing the kind of work you used to do in the 60s in terms of fighting pollutants. How has your practice changed since the advent of the EPA? The positive is that the EPA and its state equivalents, like the Oregon State Department of Environmental Quality, now have that information that we, with great difficulty, had to put together. We don't have to find the scientists anymore. They work for the EPA. They work for the Department of Environmental Quality. And that's public information that should be available. Moreover, in the better cases for those who are being harmed, the EPA or the Department of Environmental Quality on a statewide basis should undertake the enforcement mechanism as well so that individuals who are being harmed can find some appropriate means of redressing that harm through the effective means of the federal or, or state governments. That's the positive side. The negative side is that the courts are less familiar with the opportunity for individuals to seek individual relief with the ordinary tools and weapons that are available, such as our early access to trespass and nuisance law, because the courts, too, know about the, the work of the EPA and the Department of Environmental Quality and frequently will suggest that that's the appropriate venue, that that's the appropriate place to go to look for that kind of relief rather than to the court itself. So we're living in a world now where uh, the EPA may not be the avenue of uh, progressive environmental change that it has been recently. What does that mean for environmental lawyers who still want to enact progress? Where can they go to continue the fight? There are two avenues that are available. The obvious one, as far as I'm concerned, is to build on the work that's already been done through existing EPA enforcement actions, through existing regulations, through existing legislation, and to continue the pressure that is put on the polluters to make sure that they abide by the regulations, by the legislation and the decisions interpreting the regulations and legislation. That's avenue number one. That's business as usual, in effect. What that will lack is perhaps a less encouraging atmosphere, a less encouraging cooperative stance by some governmental regulators as compared to what it was uh, in, in recent days. But there's another avenue that's also available. This harkens back to what I was saying previously about the courts not being too disposed today to undertake those same kinds of enforcement mechanisms that we were able to persuade courts to take in the day before the EPA and its equivalents were in existence. Today, perhaps the courts will, and tomorrow, recognize that they better step in because there is no opportunity as great to seek the assistance from governmental regulators. So that means that there would be no exemption that should be given to private actions. 
in favor of governmental actions. Governmental actions are not being taken. The coast is clear, and the courts ought to be able to look more receptively on the private actions that are brought. Now, you've been working to convince these judges that you're talking about for decades. What do you think it's going to take to have a shift in how the courts see themselves in uh, the environmental movement? It takes intelligent advocacy by lawyers with passion for their cause. It'll take some backing and filling as well. In case one, the court may not accept that it has any role to fill and it may harken back to what it was doing in yesteryear and allowing the EPA and its equivalents to take over. But in case two, the next judge coming down the pike may recognize that there was a hole left after case one, and that hole can be filled by the application of traditional tort remedies to meet the problems that otherwise would be uh, created. Now, and anticipate that the defense on behalf of the polluters to the creative challenge that I see in the utilization of the courts will be, well, this has no business being seen by judges. This is EPA stuff. This is the EPA state equivalent stuff. And to the reply to that defense, yeah, but they aren't doing it. The rejoinder by the representatives of the polluters will be, well, we can't compel governmental regulators to do it, but that's where the jurisdiction is. So there will be that tension between the inaction of regulation and the potential application of judicial remedies that still should be available. Well, it sounds like a, a big challenge, but if we have lawyers like you, Arden, I think we'll be up to it. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming and talking today. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure indeed. All right. Well, take care, and thanks, for everyone, for listening.